Welcome to the Tea with Tamara podcast. I'm Tamara Arnold. And it wasn't that long ago that I was a broke single mom drinking way too much, completely detached from everything. Now I've written multiple books, downloaded I Could Read Chakras, and I'm a channel for the universe. I'm a real person with real stories, and I can't wait to share them with you. So grab a warm bevy and let's have some enlightened conversation to live our best life. Everyone, I am so excited to have Faith Clark with us today. And, you know, we were talking last last week and uh, as we were really sharing our personal stories about our journey raising high needs children, um, I just looked at her and I was like, you know what, Faith, this needs to be something that we all hear, like every listener, everyone who has a child, everyone who may be feeling like they're alone um, with the struggles that they're having. And Faith was like, yep, yep, we do need to have this conversation. Yep. And so we set this up and I'm excited because I, uh, even for me, and I'm just going to say this before you kind of introduce yourself, having, it doesn't matter how long since I wrote my first book, my kid is driving me crazy, having another mother who understands the feelings and the emotions that even I went through is a gift. And I truly believe the conversation we're going to have today will help so many other mothers who may be going through the same thing. So thank you. And please let everybody know who you are and what you do just to kind of bring us into this conversation. So Tamara, hi, thank you for having me. I I really enjoyed our conversation too. And it's true, right? That when we hear our stories through other people's mouths, but anyway, who am I? Um, I used to say I'm a mommy, right? Because that was kind of how I define myself. Like I do stuff to make money, but I'm a mommy. And um, and I think it's these years now, these last couple of years where I'm like, well, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm a human who loves people and I'm passionate about um, seeing where people are and just kind of saying, what's the next step you want to take? And let's take it together. And so I call myself a midwife because that was, I had two midwife births and that was the thing I loved about midwives. They kind of, they didn't try to make birth happen. You know, not not against any doctors who might be listening, right? But but the midwives were like, you know, we just step in, step with you. How's it going? How's it feeling? And they really just journeyed through the birthing process. And I see myself in that way, just what's next and how do I help you? So the people I'm helping right now are moms of kids with special needs. And many of them um, are trying to figure out alternate ways to, to do life, business, work, and make it all work in the crazy rhythm of, of the chaos that we live. And so the ones that I'm serving right now are women who are creating businesses who, while they want to create the business, they're also saying, but I'm not sleeping nights, but I spend like half the day calling on the phone with, you know, department of whoever or, you know, so how do I make this all work together? And so we create a business model that actually fits the life we live. And what's your nickname, Faith? What's my? Yeah. What do we call you? What do you call me tomorrow? I don't know. I call you a ninja, right? Like it's just- <laughs> Well, the book is Parenting Like a Ninja. And so it is this kind of like, it's a superhero kind of clandestine, but you look kind of cool, but you really are doing amazing things. 
um, on the cover because you have to. It's just it's just a normal life we live. I'm going to ask one thing, and and it's on the thing. I know that you can't see this, everybody, but Faith is talking with her hands a lot, and she keeps hitting her microphone. <laughs> and so, like, I'm just like to save my husband a little bit of, of cleaning up. We're gonna keep my, hands, keep my hands off the mic. What about this? If I held it away from my clothes, is that okay? That's good. It's good. I just laugh because it's like clink, clink, clink because you're such an expressive person and that it's beautiful and I love it. But I'm like, oh, Jeff's going to be like, really? <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> and so I just kind of want to go because the question that I'm being guided to ask, Faith, is like, when did your, because everything's been about birth and mothering and, you know, midwife and things like this. When did you, like, what was your journey into becoming a mother? So Jaden's my oldest, he's 20 now, and I remember deciding that it was time I wanted to have a baby. And Isaiah and I, my husband, we were like, okay, so is this the month? And I was, I'm one of these kind of super in tune with my body. I'm like, it's not today. No, it's, it's not today. And then I was like, it's today. It's today. You know, <laughs> come home from work early. <laughs> we're going to do the thing. We're going to, you know, <laughs> it's, it's today. And so... And it was that day, and I and I got pregnant. And my, you know, pregnancy was easy for me. Um, but towards the end of the pregnancy, my blood pressure went up, and I had to go to the hospital. And and there was this kind of period of everybody trying to make sure it was okay, and all this fear that things would go badly, and all all this thing. And I remember being in the hospital. This is like at thirty six weeks. I remember being in a hospital with all these women who also were feeling the same feelings, this fear around, is my baby going to be okay? And my blood pressure actually went higher. And I realized an environment is so important to all of us because here was I in the space with women who were afraid and I was feeling really crappy. And so my doctor allowed me to go home. I spent the week at home and she brought me back the next week. I was induced. Jaden was you know they said ah oh, she's a she's a new mom she's not gonna it's gonna be like 15 hours they sent my doctor home so they're like okay you know we're we're you'll be here for another 12 15 hours and i'd been in labor three hours and i was like i i this i feel nauseous i'm not sure what's happening i think i need to poop like what's <laughs> so i i'm really not quite sure how this is going it's like i must have missed those classes you know those childbirth classes and they basically kind of like grabbed me. I went to the bathroom because I decided that if there is any pooping happening, I don't want it to happen a while <laughs> before, the, you know. So I went to the bathroom to address the situation. And I was like, wait, the, the poop's coming from the wrong place. <laughs> and, um, you know, I started calling for help. And that was Jaden. And, and like my doctor came back two hours later. She's like, what happened? I, I had the baby, <laughs> you know, so the medical student and the one nurse that was on shift and, and we had the baby and that was me. And, and I think kind of, uh, I guess just knowing that you can trust, like it, all the stuff doesn't have to be ready and right. So you don't have to know all the things. Um, and, and, and he came, you know, so that's kind of like my foray into, into having a baby. And I, I, I realized that I always, I, I wanted to understand him. So I didn't, I didn't kind of subscribe to the, uh, let's train him to sleep. Let's, I like, I, I held my baby. I wanted to feel him and to feel what he needed by holding him. And so 
people say, oh, you spoiled him. Is that what, that is what I was, you know, you spoiled him. You didn't kind of, but, but I, I, I held him. I, I breastfed him constantly. The doctor told me, breastfeed him every hour and a half so that he'll put on weight. He was a little skinny. I was like, yeah. And so he, you know, you got really fat very fast. And, and that was kind of like my intro into this, this world. It was like a, a stuck up. A curtain lifted, and then I was a mother, and then I was this person who um, was uh, like almost a, a container for another human life. So that's my birth story. Well, that was a beautiful birth story, by the way. I found that very well entertaining. A, um, but I'm just curious, how old were you when you gave birth to to Jaden? Twenty eight. Twenty eight. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're going to go to everything that happened before this. <laughs> I warned Faith. I'm like, I want to know where you came from and what your like, life story is. And, and again, because you, did you give birth to Jaden in the States or were you in Jamaica at the time? I was in Jamaica at the time. Yeah. Okay. So right before we got on to this podcast, I was like, I want to know your story about, how, you know, coming to to the, the States. Coming to America. Yeah, yeah, coming to America. And you're like, well, I have two. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to, like, your story, like, your history. What brought you to, because did you already have, had you already come to the States once and gone back and had Jaden? Is that the story? Yeah, so my mom lived in the States since I was 12. I lived in Jamaica with my grandmother. My mom lived in the States. And so... Uh, when I was 21 and the opportunity came to live in the States, my mother had filed for us and we could, my brother and myself, and we could, you know, choose to move here. I remembered feeling like I wanted to get to know my mother as this older version of myself. And can so, just, can I just, sorry, why were you not living in the States with your mom in the first place? That's the question that I have. Like, why are you in Jamaica with your grandmother while your, well, your mom's in, in the States? So my mom stopped, she got laid off from her job in Jamaica and she felt like she had no way to make, to, to, to sustain our lives in Jamaica, but she didn't know what America had. And she just, she didn't want to disrupt our lives, school and whatever. So she came up and basically there's a term in Jamaica called barrel children. A barrel is, is what Caribbean people call this mat, this round container that you pack food in. And in essence, many Caribbean women will go to the U.S. or to England and work two and three jobs and send back barrels with food and money send, you know, to, to kind of sustain life there. And so we lived with my grandmother and my mother sent some stuff back and then she would visit and we would visit her. But like we had our life in Jamaica. And so when we had the visa to live here, um, that decision was, well, well, what do you want to do? And I knew I wanted to teach. Um, that was kind of like my thing right after deciding that I did not want to be a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. And then I saw the cadaver, the dead body. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, you, I, you know, um, and I wanted to teach. And so I could have just left college in Jamaica and taught, but I wanted to build this connection with her. So I said, well, grad school. So it was really a flippant. Let me try grad school because that's the excuse I would have to be with her. And, um, and I decided it was quite, she's in New York. So I just like, what are two grad schools in New York? And I, I didn't know a lot. So I just chose two that were came up, Columbia and NYU. And so I chose two and went to Columbia. 
So it wasn't very like, you know, strategic along the career path types of, I just wanted to spend time with her. So. Well, that's kind of beautiful and wonderful and nice. And so you, you were 21 when you came over the first time? Yeah, I was 21. And and you came in and did you go to grad school immediately or did you, you know, have space and time to get to know your mom before you went to grad school? No, I went to grad school immediately and that was getting to know her because she was driving me to school and, you know, it was that she worked 7 a.m. to midnight most days. Yeah, she had two jobs, but she on the days when she had one job, then so that might be a couple of days a week, she would you know, pick me up at, at in the city or sometimes I wanted to be at the computer lab until three because I was a computer engineering master's and she would pick me up at two in the morning. So she'd leave work and she'd come down to Columbia and pick me up. And so there was a lot of that traveling. And I, at midnight when she came in, there was also um, just how her day was and all this talking that we did. So that was our together time. School was actually easier in terms of getting to know her, I think. When I had a work rhythm right after grad school, I started working. And that was a different kind of rhythm than um, the way we, we kind of got in sync with each other when, she, when I was in school. So how long did you stay in the States before you went back to Jamaica again? About five years. And so, well, uh, Sorry, go. Yeah, so I think it was 95, it was four and a half years, um, because in 95, I decided that the guy that I was good friends with in college in Jamaica, like we were going to get married. And so for the whole time I was living here, we were kind of saying, so, you know, I miss you. And are we in a thing? No, we're not in a thing. And so we had that conversation until finally we're like, are we, what are we doing? And we're like, okay, we're getting married. So I moved back. <laughs> Just all the way you just throw it down. Okay, we're going to get married. <laughs> it's like, if, if we're doing it, let's do it. If we're not, you know. So I, I moved back to Jamaica in August. We got married in September. So we knew, kind of planned it, and we got married. And I started teaching at the university there. So I kind of had set that up. And then I came, started teaching. And mm. so that was my coming to America, number one. I helped my mom kind of set up a few things, went back. To Jamaica and you know switched the course of my life a little bit because the graduate school allowed me to do college teaching and I known that I'd loved the flexibility of college teaching and so that was that was my life back there. So you go back and you're 25, 25, 25 yeah. yeah and now you're married and you mm -hmm. have this job and by the way, I just need to call you out a little bit on how ridiculous your intuition is. Like, who can say I'm so in tune with my body that, you know, is it time? Is it time? Now's the time. Come home from work. It's time to make a baby. I just know that this is the insemination day. Come. <laughs> I'm like, I, and I didn't even know it was like that because I, you know, I had kind of was checking my body temperature and stuff. So I knew. But even with the symptothermal kind of stuff. You don't know precisely. So I, it, it's in retrospect that, that I realized how precise it was. And I was like, it couldn't have been any other day because life did not allow, you know, too much anything. So it was, it was just the day that I kind of said, no, that, yeah, that was the only day it could have happened. And <laughs> I just love that. I just love that part of the story. So you have Jaden and you're... I think they call it bonding parenting now because my, my attachment parenting, attachment yeah. parenting. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're, you're super, super close. 
Now, did you know at this point, like how long into your journey with Jaden did you go before you realized that there were was something going on? So um, I didn't know. Um, I knew I didn't know that he was different. I knew he was exceptional, but I felt like exceptional might have just been my bias. Because I'm like, everything you do is phenomenal. You're just so awesome. You're so cute. You're so sweet. Um, so he was super fascinated with the graphic equalizer. So, you know, I'm calling myself out now. Who has graphic equalizers now on the stereo? But at that point in time, the stereo had these lights that moved up and down. And he would just sit and watch them. And I was like, you must going to be a physicist or something. That like, He would be so fascinated with how these lights moved. And he would take the stacking blocks of, you know, the regular alphabet blocks. And he was maybe six months at the time. And instead of stacking these alphabet blocks, he'd spin them. He'd balance them on the corner of the block and spin them. And he'd set all of them spinning. Uh, it was just several of them. Or the little dishes, like, you know, the toy sets would have dishes. And he'd set the dishes spinning, set the blocks spinning, set the dishes spinning. And I was like, and so I was fascinated by that as clearly a difference and I didn't know what it meant but I I was intrigued um and so he would copy a scale exactly both my husband and I sang and there's a lot of music in our house and if I sang a scale he could fill in the notes and so I, I just like I you know I'm I guess I believe in giftedness and and that there's people have special talents and stuff and I was like ooh, I get to be a custodian of one of these you know and then as he got older, some of the older meaning now at about one, um, he started to look like he wasn't paying attention when we spoke to him. He started to not respond to his name. He started to. So I would say he had a regression. Many people who have kids with autism say that they have a regression. Um, and I don't know what the incident was. So, uh, regression is usually triggered by something. And I don't know, I can't, you know, I can speculate as to what might have happened. But there definitely was a moment when he shifted from a baby babble that felt conversational to, to sounds that were staccato and kind of more mechanical. Um, and when he shifted from being responsive when we spoke to him to not as responsive. And when we'd say, hey, go get the block, um, he would go and get the wrong thing. And then maybe a week later, we'd say, go get the block. And then he'd go and return without anything. And then he would just go and not return. So there was a, a definite progression of something's changing. Um, and as I had mentioned this, autism kind of came to mind, but you know, the stereotype was Rain Man at that time. And I was like, I, I, you know, he's connected to me. That was the people say kids with autism aren't connected. I said, like, but he's definitely connected to me. I mean, this kid is on my body all the time. And you know, it helps that I breastfed him till he was two. <laughs> he was he was on my body all the time. He he didn't he wasn't resistant to any kind of connection, as far as I could tell. Um, but um, there's definitely something happening, and so I had the privilege because I worked at the university. The university has the university hospital, part of the same institution, and I could kind of say, "Hey, I knew the head of department," and it's like this is going on. She said, "Come in." And when I kind of brought him, she said, well, you should bring him back for an evaluation. But this is definitely autism. So that was kind of, and at that point, he was 20 months old, I think, 20 to 22 months by the time she was, she just eyeballed it. And I was like, you know, no, what does that mean? No, you know, because there is that moment when, you know, you start this journey as 
this is amazing and beautiful. I get to be custodian of a maverick, you know, and then it's like, what are you saying? Um, and so there is in some ways the death of the child you thought you had to acknowledge the child you do have, but then how do you even know that child um, to then come back? Oh, I do have a maverick, but it's different. You know, so there is a real process. Did you have any previous information or knowledge about autism before learning that Jaden had autism? Or was this like a complete kind of, I'm saying blindside, but in, in a, in a, not in the way of like a bad way, just like I went from zero knowledge or information to now I'm the steward of a child and they have a need that I need to fulfill, that I need to look into. Yeah, I, I didn't know anything about it except for kind of random information here and there, um, TV and a couple of articles here and there, but it was quite distant from me, the way I know about anything else. I'm, you know, I'm curious. I read about stuff, but there wasn't, I didn't know anybody who had any kids with autism. I didn't, you know, and so, yeah, it was completely... And the one thing I found out, because when I spoke to this woman, you know, the first thing she said, I said, what, what do we do about it? And she's like the only scientifically researched. You know, so far, I've been kind of parenting from a place of, yes, scientific research, but, but almost what have people done from the beginning of time? And the reason I kind of chose attachment parenting was because I don't know that in tribal societies, people were kind of separating babies from their parents to kind of cry it out. I just, you know, felt, um, people were carrying their babies attached to their backs while they were working. So I, I just, that was, but this kind of what is autism and the only scientifically researched approach that we know that it totally separated me from anything that felt connected to my thought process on how to be with this child. And so. So Jaden's 21 months. Now, what's the age difference between your two children? Three years. Two and a half, three years. So I actually was, I was either just about to be pregnant with Simone or was pregnant with her when I got his diagnosis. Had I gotten his diagnosis before I was pregnant, I'd have probably at all costs avoided another pregnancy because you just, it felt so scary. Like if stuff like this can happen, should we bring more children into the world? And so, but yeah, I think I was just pregnant with her when I got his diagnosis. You know, the universe works in miraculous ways, right? In order for us to receive exactly what we need um, in our lives. That's right. And so then my question for you is now you have the diagnosis, you work at a university, you're pregnant with your second child, you know, you're 26, 27 years old. 27, yeah. Mm -hmm. So then what makes you leave because it seems like that's a really good place to be like that seems like it's it's you've got everything together there you're you know Jaden's in a perfectly good spot to get the treatments or to have access to all that he's going to need and you know everything seems to, what made you journey back to the state right so actually I was 30 because James born when I was 28 I forgot so like I've lost ah. track of time <laughs> right so <laughs> um well number one so that's the first thing and everything does work together but number one I remembered having Jaden reminded me I wanted to be home with my kids. Um, so right at that point, my contract at the university was not renewed. And it was like a mixed bag. I was like, you ungrateful people. But 
<laughs> but at the same time, it was, oh, you've given me permission to do what I wanted. And I started to teach in different ways, wrote curriculum for their, uh, their kind of equivalent of their online stuff now. But I was able to kind of be home. So that was the first thing. I was more separate from the university. But even at that time in Jamaica, there were three speech pathologists on the island. Um, the hospital isn't a place for kind of ongoing therapeutic support. And the therapeutic support was basically, um, aside from speech and physical therapy and occupational therapy, it's, do you need medication? And I wasn't kind of like, a, well, for what? Let's, I don't know if I need medication. So I didn't, you know, my doctor at the time said to me, you will know when you need medication. So the fact that you're saying that means you don't. And so I didn't necessarily feel like Jamaica had a lot of different ways of thinking about it. And then I kind of grew up seeing mental illness. And um, I don't know that autism is considered mental illness, but by the way, you might hear Jaden. I apologize to everybody. And Jeff, I'm sorry. I apologize. No, please. This is, this is, the, this is the real conversation. <laughs> this is, this is real time. This is, I actually think it's better that we hear him because I think that this is the true, honest, behind-the-scenes look of being you know, an entrepreneur and a parent with a high-needs child. So I'm grateful for him, for, <laughs> for being him. I'll tell him. Um, so, you know, the, the limitations that I, I felt was just, just kind of one perspective on um, how autism was dealt with, mixed into the fact that I'd seen what looked like mental illness as I grew up was put in one of two ways. It was either, you know, insane which there is like two hospitals that dealt with people with mental illnesses. And it was, you know, very stereotyped kind of didn't feel positive at all. And, or, or people walking on the street, um, which did, didn't feel supportive or demon possessed. And I, like, I felt like I didn't want either of those two extremes for him. And I really wanted space to think about what this is without worrying about the perception um, and then because, you know, the thing with autism is that it's not physical. So as you can say, some cerebral palsy, there, there are different disabilities that you can see on the body. A two-year-old with autism doesn't look any different from any other child. And so then it's really easy for community to say, well, it's your fault. He's not listening because of you. He's not, you know, parenting and stuff. And so Jamaica felt like I, I love my island, um, but it felt like there was such a homogenous view of what should be that I didn't have space to figure out what could be. So I have to ask you something here because it's on my mind. Um, you know, you get the diagnosis, he's almost two years old and then you, you, it's almost like you could see the journey ahead of you with him. Like you just had this knowing of the, the challenges or the difficulties. How like how long did it take you to find out there were three pathologists on the island? didn't take me long. An island is small. So you just like, by the time, once you know who to be, I mean, I knew personally the one person in Jamaica who could diagnose autism at 22 months. The person I spoke to was the only person on the island who could do that. So she would, she can say, you go to her or her or her. So I went to the one of the three speech pathologists and kind of observed, you know, two sessions with her to kind of see how she was. And I was like, hmm. There is a lot of work being done to kind of make a child look normal. And that I knew that didn't fit and had a conversation with the other one, you know, met one of the three OT, you know. And so it, it was very easily, it's all centered around Kingston, which is where I lived, rural areas. Everybody from rural areas traveled in if they needed help. 
So um, it was it was very easy for me to kind of quickly get a sense of what the deal was. Got you. And so how long after the diagnosis before you, you moved? So a friend of mine said it to me and she was, I, I, I really appreciate her. She's my friend who died in um, November. Uh, she, uh, as a woman 10 years older than me, has always been like a foreteller in, in life. And so she just said, you are able to live in the States. You should go. And I, you know, this is having returned from the States and determined that Jamaica is better for us. That was me. I had already said, no, I don't want to live in the U.S. I want to live in Jamaica. I enjoy the quality of life I have here. I want to be where there's heat. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so when she kind of said it, she was just like, think about this and think about the possibilities for him. And so it was very quick after that. I just decided I my mom made appointments for Jaden at the, you know, the therapy centers here. I was pregnant with Simon by then and pretty large. So I had to make some decisions about when I would travel. And I basically set it up so that she was born here. And so it was within the pregnancy. I had come up, um, had her, had taken him to appointments and had him kind of begin the process of being, um, first of all, getting an official diagnosis and then getting therapy and so on. And where was your husband? Did he come with you right away? No. So he came up with me when I was having Simon. Uh, I think he came up maybe close to the time when Simon was going to be due. And then he went back. And he and I lived apart for two years. We traveled back and forth for two years. We had a house in Jamaica. So we had to kind of think, well, what are we going to do? Are we, am I doing this temporarily to see if it helps to go back? Or are you coming up? And so it took us two years to make that decision. and then. He came up. So were you basically single parenting at that point? Basically. I mean, it was, well, it was tribal parenting. I, I mean, I lived with my mom and my brother, uh, my two kids. My grandmother was there at that time. My, my mom had a tenant in a three-bedroom apartment. So it was... <laughs> it was, it was we were kind of, it was like tight, you know, it was a community. Uh, it was community. <laughs> That's what it was. In the tenants, my grandmother, my mom, my brother, me and my two kids. Were, Did you guys get your own bedroom? Um, I think at times I shared a bedroom with my mom. So me and the kids had the two beds put together, like we put the beds together, put the rail on the side of the bed. And then um, my mom, sometimes her bed was in there. And then when we got rid of the tenants, it was like, whoo space <laughs> she went into the tennis room. but that's amazing because it's a true testament to what we do right like it's a true testament of you know and it was a beautiful you felt yeah. it was a beautiful experience right mm-hmm. it was you know a shared community of closeness and love in which your children could be brought into like and i mean simone was only up until two years old at that point i think about i mean by the time we moved she was maybe two and a half or three right. and i was you know, um, I don't know if I was getting because I got pregnant with Zachary when she was three, so or two and a half. So yeah, so she, it was only up till she was two. And okay, I'm a little blindsided because I only thought you had two children. 
oh, you don't notice I have three kids? How does that work out? my two boys and thinking they're the same boy <laughs> I don't know what was happening here because I think it's always that I felt so connected to you over Jaded and, and Ethan right because both our sons are 20 years old and then I just you know all the attention so I'm sorry Zachary <laughs> <laughs> I have a 14 year old now so so we have 20 17 14 going on right now so yeah and the thing with Zach was I looked at Simon when she came and I knew the gift she was to me as a normalizing effect. I knew the, the, the risk of kind of being completely caught in, in, in this. What is this? And so when I looked at her, I was like, I'm having another one. So I knew my husband at the time, as I didn't agree, so I didn't tell him. But um, I, and, I mean, you know, he cooperated. But I, I, I was going to have another one because there's a way I wanted, I wanted community for Jaden. And so that this was that was a crazy community in our house. So yeah. So when your husband moved up from Jamaica, was that when you guys got your own space, or did you like? So we lived together for a little, and yeah. then we um, rented our own apartment, which was close by, so that we maintained the kind of communal feel. But we were separate. And my mom had a key to our apartment. I'd wake up and she's kind of say, "I'm just taking some laundry to wash." I'm like, "Yeah, that's awesome. Do that." <laughs> <laughs> And so you, I just, I'm mesmerized by this, right? Because like you've come over from Jamaica, Jaden is now like five when you, when you move, when you have Zachary, five or six, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what does your life look like at that point with him? So the, the kind of really pivotal piece I feel was when the third kid comes in that number three is different from having two kids. Um, so um, I I had by the time I had Zachary, um, Jaden was probably in kindergarten or whatever. So he'd go to school. The school bus would come and get him at seven in the morning. Um, but I am breastfeeding a kid, some kid. I just, um, you know, just for seven years, <laughs> I was breastfeeding a child, whichever one. Um, and so so there's this constant night waking, whether it's because of some child I'm trying to convince to not need food or Jaden who um, took a long time to figure out how to get himself to sleep and or his best sleeping actually was after when he was three years old he kind of had figured it out and he'd go to sleep maybe at midnight and he'd wake up at seven and that was awesome and so there's this persistent feeling of the nights are bumpy somebody's up and then we get up put him on the school bus and navigate the other two kids um, but school was, I felt this weird, um, thing on my inside that school wasn't a good fit. It wasn't bad. It wasn't abusive, but I would, I was always at school. In fact, at Jaden's school, they thought I was staff before, before people were more, you know, checking all kinds of ID. The security guard one year in asked me for ID and I was like, Hey, you know, and he's like, I thought you were staff. And he just, he had always just let me in. And so I was constantly there observing. And I, there was a way that people felt lackluster to me. And it's like, you know, talking is hard for Jaden, organizing himself, getting his body to, to cooperate. Or he was at that time pretty mild-mannered. But these things are hard for him. And everybody's energy felt so low. 
And I was like, I, this just feels like babysitting. And there was a point when I needed that. I needed him to go for me to have some space to think, uh, what, what, what do I do? But after a point, it was just like, this really doesn't feel good. And so I took the decision right at the point when <laughs> I have three kids to also homeschool him. I'd understood, I'd learned a bit of um, some different types of interventions and had a good sense of what I thought would be a good fit for him. And so I homeschooled him by training college students and grad students to help me and created a schedule at home for him. And he had Okay, therapy. hold on a second. There's a couple of different things going on because I am curious because you live in New York, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm only saying this because I it's normal for you, but it, it's not in my school. We don't have security guards in our schools. Mm-hmm. Right? Has that always been something for all your kids? Is that like a normal... So the schools in New York do have security guards and the security has increased over years. So I think Jaden was actually in school in Manhattan during 9-11. And this is post 9-11 and the security has increased in the combinations of perhaps school shootings and other things. Um, so I've, I've noticed the increased presence of police and checking and bags and stuff as he's gotten older. Um, but at that point, with the, in the time I mentioned, he was about five, six, right? Um, when he moved, there was one other school that I had uh, looked at for him at a little bit older. And I was like, I was quite startled at the you know, two police and sign in and walk through metal detector type of thing. And so, but yeah. Just, just a different view of life, right? Like, cause I just, I found that a fascinating conversation piece. And I... different for me too, because I'm really used to full access. Yeah. The more, you know, for some private schools and my kids are in private school now, you know, there is this sense of full access. Whereas in other spaces, there is, there are these multiple, both physical barriers and, you know, protocol barriers between myself and the child. And so to just observe Jaden know in his school, I have to have multiple permissions. The psychologist has to be there. And this also is very interesting to me um, because I, I just... Like, I just want to see what you're doing. I know. I know. It's like, it's like, I can just peek through the door. I'm right here. I just dropped him off. I can actually just stick my head in the door. But, but the notion of the multiple protocol, and I'm sure they have good reasons, but it still is, it, it is this artificialness. And as, as you know, I'm about integration. I am not about it, separation. Like, the stuff all should fit together. So, it, you know, it's, it's interesting. This, it totally is. Just totally that caught me when we were talking here. And the other part is, is okay. Like, so you decide to homeschool and then you just are like, to make this a functioning homeschool environment and to have support, I'm going to go and corral some grad students. Did they need volunteer hours? Like, what do you do, Faith? Like, I just, it's a testament to your mind. It's a testament to how you truly are a ninja at seeing a solution to everything. Right. To say like, OK, this is my my problem. Not even a problem. This is where I'm at and this is what I need. And so in order to make X, Y, Z a reality for me, these are the steps I need to do. So what did you do to make that happen? So I'd learned this program about that. I used to homeschool Jaden. I'd gone away and done a then took him to an institute um, and learned an approach that was very play based and very respectful of who he was. So I wanted to do more of this, but felt just it was hard for me 
with the two other kids in the house to just to make it happen. And I felt sad for a long time, long meaning maybe a year, just like, I don't think I can implement this well, but I feel like I'm doing a disservice to Jaden. Um, and just let me stick a pin here, though, that my really deep belief was that if I if he's home and happy and settled and his stress is lower, that's still better than him being stressed out and harassed, you know. So I just kind of stayed, stayed settled with that, but talked with other parents, like, how are you guys doing it? And people said, oh, we got volunteers. I was like, this is New York City. There's nobody who's trying to volunteer just to come to random Jane's house. It, that was how I felt. And so I felt, you know, like, how, how do I convince people? And so as part of handling that, I said, what do I have? What, what can I do? It's like, I'm an ac academic. Everything is a learning opportunity for me. And so I recrafted volunteer into intern. It just kind of did a switch in my head. And it's like, what does intern mean? Oh, you, know, you get my time. I'm supervising. Um, you get my, you know, like curriculum. I wrote it out. And so I kind of put structure around it and started to just say, I have an autism intern. Meet me at this place. Apply. Meet me at this place. And I, I kind of put people through multiple layers of, are you really serious? So I gave them hard stuff, stuff to read. They should reply. Tell me what they thought about this thing. Watch this video. Tell me what you thought. And then 100 people would reply, apply and then 50 would not respond to the thing. So then of the 50, I would say, okay, meet me at this place to talk about this thing. And so maybe 20 people show up in a room and then four people are good candidates. And so we kind of, we did it that way. I'm sorry, that's a really helpful thing for uh, other parents to hear. So I'm so grateful that you just shared that story because I think that that's something that can really ease some, some other mothers that may be, you know, looking for that same support and help, especially because how old were your kids when this was going? The other two, Simone and Zachary, right? Yeah, so like, and Zach had a speech delay. So I was also, Zach was in early intervention. He was getting speech therapy. Simone was five, so Zach was two, Simone is five, Jaden's now seven, eight. You know, it's that kind of age um, where you asked how life was. It, it was a cosmic psychic wave everything right is crying whoosh <laughs> you know need to eat whoosh you know pooping whoosh <laughs> everything was they all agreed on some level and then just <laughs> took over so it was very intense so yeah um so i'm gonna ask you a question because now you've got the intern support and everything with Jaden is going smoothly he's content he's happy right uh what did you ever notice any, um, not jealousy, but discomfort from the other two? The fact that, you know, you mean Jaden was home now, you know, it's a month on her way to school. Is she going like, wait a minute, like, you know? So here's the thing. Once I decided that Jaden was home, everybody was home. So I homeschooled for 14 years and it was, we created our own kind of, this is life. And so I would tutor kids. I had a couple of students that I tutored, regular or typically developing kids, math and stuff. And I remember I had one kid who came to the house and Jaden was running around doing some stuff. And he, he turned around like, what's wrong with him? And Simone looked at him and she, maybe she was five. And she looked at him and she's like, he's a Jaden. So in other words, what's, what's wrong with you? Like, he's a Jaden. You're you. Like, and it, it was so, um, <laughs> so, so we, we crafted our own normal. I didn't feel like there was jealousy. I felt that there was always a sense of um, 
everything is as it needs to be for each child. Things shifted during puberty um, because when Jaden started to go through puberty, so Jaden had a second regression when he was six and that changed how autism looked. I mean, and when I say a second regression, there was just like a few days when he stopped moving, stopped, he just didn't eat. It was a, something happened and we don't know what it was. And when he kind of came out of that, he, his autism looked different. And um, some of the, you know, more tick-like behaviors that came with the second regression really um, exacerbated or got worse during puberty and puberty brought in some aggression and some other things. So it was really stressful to deal with. And I could see the effects of that on my other two kids because like Zachary at, uh, you know, as my littlest one, Zach has always been at that point, my smallest child and my shortest and he's, you know, little, and um, he would feel so frustrated that he couldn't do something to help me, to stop it, to whatever, you know. And Simon has been always functionally like the older child. So it's super helpful, all overcompensate, you know, just all of those characteristics. And so the her, I guess, almost wanting to help, but then scared because he might you know he's gonna grab something from her he's going to take her journal and and I remember one day she said to him when you start talking you will have so much to apologize for (laughs) (laughs) so you know he'd take out a journal and he'd ripped a page and so there's a, a lot of kind of holding the effects of your brother's body not cooperating with you or him you know, because we came to find later as he was able to communicate with us that he he expressed such a disconnect between what he intended and what played out. So, so when you say that when you found other means to communicate, because, you know, Jaden was nonverbal autistic, is that what it's called? Yes, I would say unreliably verbal. So he, he had single words. For a long time, he's had single words that he uses to communicate his wants and needs. But he also had ritualistic single words that he would say over and over again and that you would think he meant he needed, like, how much peanut butter do you really want, right? But but we came to realize that those speech patterns were not intentional communicative speech. They were part of the more obsessive rituals that he did with his body. And speech is a motor expression. Right. And so then... How long did that go before you learned alternate ways to communicate? So he was 17 before, you know, I've, I've heard about people communicating in alternate ways, but I'd had a notion that you had to have been at a certain quote unquote level. And I had no data that said Jaden was at that level. So I, I dismissed it. You know, he can't type because he can't read. We had no data to suggest that he could read. I've heard tons of stories about kids who can read, who don't show that they can read, but I just kept saying this didn't apply to Jaden. And I would still be showing him, you know, his letters and stuff. He was 17 when I met the speech pathologist who came to our house and I'd researched her and I felt super clear that if anybody knew how to see if he could read, she could. Um, and I'd heard about her story with another client. At this point, I'd also started a business that formalized my helping other families, similar to how I'd help myself. And so this woman was a client and she said, no, my, my speech pathologist helped my son to type this sentence. She sent me the sentence and I'm crying and she's crying. I had another friend who sent me a whole paragraph her son had typed and we were seeing in him 
like completely different. His written words are so different from how he showed up. So she had been saying, I know this is for you. I know this is for you. So the woman is at my house and she has Jaden when she's holding like a, a keyboard and she's doing some, I don't know, magic ninja stuff. I don't know what she's doing. I couldn't figure out. It's like, what exactly are you doing? She's saying, just write down what he's saying. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and his first sentence that he typed was assume. And I remember right there, I got stuck. Like she said, A, S, S. And I'm thinking, that's a strange word. <laughs> U, M, E. Assume that I am doing really great things, but I'm scared to let others know. Like, I, I. That was his first sentence. That's, and as a, I tell people, and people are like, he's your kid. He's not going to talk about dog and cat. <laughs> his first sentence that he typed, and I, and then he ran off, and I was like, what is going on? It, it was so jolting for me. Um, can I believe her? Is she scamming me? How much money? I mean, I, I went through, like, in, in a minute, I went through an entire kind of like reassessment of my own. Who is this and why is she and how did this happen? And uh, until I, I basically began to learn her approach of helping support. And her basic approach is his body isn't cooperating. So you have to stabilize his impulsive movement until you can read the intentional movement. And she, she's so skillful at it that she knew when. She says, this is very clear. This is very clear to me. But I, I didn't know. So I had to kind of learn. And it was funny when we had sessions with her. She'd say, so how's mom doing? And he's like, she's getting better. <laughs> <laughs> because it was me learning how to understand when he was being impossible and when not so that the communication could come through. And typing no, like, what it, like I just I have to stop here, Faith, to just bring attention to like what a shift, like a like a door opening, like a you know what I mean, like a, what it, to have all of a sudden a communication on this caliber with a child of seventeen years old, like Jaden, you'd been living with him, he was like attachment parenting, and all of a sudden he's having these full blown conversations with you, like what was that like? It took a lot of time to actually believe. So, so for, I think for six months, I still was like, is this me or this him? Is this me or this him? Am I, because, because the way it had to happen is that I had to be holding his hand. So, and then there's all kinds of stuff on the internet that says, you know, it's people are forcing, it, it's not real. So, but, but I'm, but like, but I'm, I'm the one in the experience and and I, I, I know this is real, but I, it took me a really long time to kind of really tune in to his communication because he is communicating and I am learning how to do it. And, and he would um, say to the speech person is that that mom needs to be willing to do full sentences. <laughs> the speech person would say to me, yes, you need to not be scared. You need to just keep going. Right. Just don't wait until you have it perfectly. So it was really about me trusting myself. Um, but as I shifted into that deeper place of trusting, you know, there is the, it's not quite grief, but it's this weird, um, where, wh oh, I wish I'd known this before. Right. And then to hear him say, cause now because of how I was learning, I'd learned two approaches now to this new thing. Cause I'm like that, right. I can't just do one thing. So I learned two different approaches, didn't know how to choose between the two of them. So I was running both programs parallel with him at home. 
doing this approach that a speech pathologist told me and doing another approach called rapid prompting method, which is similar. He's touching the keyboard. And, you know, both thought processes feel that maybe the other might be confusing to the child. And yet I'm watching him transition between the two. I'm like, wait, you all along, you've been catching all kinds of stuff and you've been taking all kinds of things in. And so there's a, a way that I'd come to know his ninja skills. That while his body has not been cooperating, and so, yeah, he does run around kind of, yeah, he is a, a flight risk. Yes, he could elope. Yes, there are some things that need to be, like the doors have to be locked. And, you know, there's a lot of that. And yet there's all this whole layer of stuff that he's been taking in. So one day I was doing a chemistry lesson with him. One of the approaches is like flood him with high quality content because so much of the stuff we do with kids with special needs, with disabilities is not rich enough content wise, does not speak to the brain because, because we can't get back what we need. We think they don't know. And so I was doing a chemistry lesson with him and I finished the lesson. I felt so proud of myself. And I said, so, you know, is there anything else? Do you want to do anything? He said, so why baby chemistry? <laughs> <laughs> what? 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 What do you mean? Uh, and she said, uh, he said, um, maybe high school chemistry. And so there's just been this constant, like, each time I think, whoa. And he's like, no, yeah, we could do more. We could do more. Um, and so that's been, it's been interesting to straddle that with his desire to be independent. He really doesn't want me to hold his hand. So he has to build more motor control. And then to use that to negotiate with him. Hey, Jay, these exercises are the exercises are going to build the motor control. I know you don't want to do them, but now, now we have a, a way to kind of go into his motivation. Right. And honestly, it's a, a motivating factor for me too, because um, as you know, I'm studying as well and I'm doing this PhD and I'd gotten to a place in the PhD where I could have given it up. I, I learned what I wanted to learn and I felt really satisfied. I'm happy. And I was kind of just meandering around. And then I saw this. And I was like, I have to finish this PhD. I have to finish this PhD because I really need to free this time up because I can see the future for him. And I really want to be present for that. And, you know, in some of the spaces that I have to be with him, I do have to be a little Napoleon. I kind of have to stand up to my full height. And, I, and saying Dr. Clark makes a difference, they don't listen to me. You know, I have to kind of use the four-syllable words to get the credibility in, in some of the spaces to argue for what he needs. Because mm -hmm. there's so much of the system that's built on whatever legacy thought that they had, you know, 50 years ago. And so I, uh, he actually helped me to kind of just say, get rid of it, just do that, just finish it, so that you can free your head too. Well, and I actually want to go back because you, you got your grad school, you went to Jamaica, you're working at the university, then you did an online thing, then you came here and you technically homeschooled your children, so you're still teaching. And then you threw into the conversation that you had begun working with other uh, parents who were going through something similar to you during this process. You know what I mean? Because you are a teacher by nature. That is your heart beat that is your essence that is you know what fires you up what lights you up what creates the magic for you to show up in all areas of your life so where are you now in all of this it's funny right that all the dots do connect um because weirdly enough like i was a computer programmer and i do see in systems and so right now i see myself as a system designer 
but I'm a system designer for human systems and life systems and business systems because we want to make everything work. So where I am right now, I, I have, I've just scaled back my business that trained caregivers for families. And I'm really focusing on helping families who want to start businesses, start businesses that make sense. And I've realized that some of the stuff that I had to deal with was the, that grief that you don't process, but then you go straight into fixing mode. Cause like, we're going to beat it. Like if you're a type A type of person, you know, a lot of women kind of get into like, let's address it. You know, whatever needs to be done, we're going to do it. And there's a lot of not addressing self. Um, and so just massive amounts of mood disorders and, and well-being issues for women of kids with special needs, especially the invisible-looking special needs like autism and stuff. The, a wheelchair kind of gives you permission almost to, to heal in a way that um, people not acknowledging it. You know, and I, I can be I can imagine that's similar for mental illness because it's it can be so invisible. Well, I'm just gonna slow down for a second because I just it just came at me really strongly and what you were exceptional at doing, which was not getting lost in being only the parent, right? Which was the opposite of my story, which is I gave everything away. Like I thought I had to give everything up in order to, you know, fix Ethan right? To make everything better. I made the baby. Now I need to fix the baby. Um, but you had this underlying truth of staying into your pocket, what you were exceptional at. You always serving somebody else, always maintaining yourself throughout that process. And I'm just like, wow, Faith, that's really, really strong. I can see why you're supporting other people with that right now. I, um, and you know, at the time it didn't seem so clear to me that I was really being so, um, clear on it. But, um, I, the two things that I know really clearly, um, and one is that I'm here to help people take the next step, whatever that next step is in whatever space. And I, I do operate that way. But two, Jaden's name means God has heard. And I do remember kind of a crisis moment of what is this? I was pregnant with somebody at the Simona Zachary and it's just like, this is unbelievable how hard this is. And I was kind of rage quarreling. It's like, God, what, you know, what's, is, is it my prayer? <laughs> and, and this kind of really strong sense of whose prayer do you think I've heard? Because there's lots of people's prayers. And, and, and just that, you know, I, I agree. Whatever it is, I agree. Just fix my kid. Um, but, but, but just this sense of, I, I know when I'm, when I'm with people, I hold the truth of, of the fact that I'm helping almost for the future, even if I'm not specifically helping Jaden. And I have to kind of just be okay that sometimes the experience that this human is having in this moment is for the human who will be having an experience 10 years from now. And, and I, it might not be that I find a solution for him specifically in that moment. I hope I do in so many ways. And I've seen so many breakthroughs for him, but, but that kind of kept me from insanity many nights when we went through this, we're going to sleep at four o'clock in the morning stretch. And I'm just like, this, this is sleep deprivation for years is, is a beast. And four o'clock in the morning is like, you know, not a good time. <laughs> Dark thoughts come. And, and so it was an anchor to kind of hold on to, this is for someone else. 
And I sometimes visualize her, this woman who is somewhere in a tribal space, maybe where she is protecting her son from the voices of people who are saying whatever. And just like this is for someone else, you know, and so that's very powerful that's thought, a very powerful thought. Um, I have a big question for you. Okay. Uh, well, it's not really big. It's my favorite question. I ask it at the end of every podcast. Because I can't believe an hour has passed. Basically. I can't believe that either. Like, it feels like we just got on <laughs> to talk. Um, so thank you. But I'm going to ask you about the one book <laughs> that has made the most impact in your life. And the first thought is the right answer. So even if you've listened to a podcast and you've gotten on with an idea of what you were going to say, and you can hear something else, you know how I feel about that. <laughs> What book comes to mind as being one that really impacted you in your life and and how you became the faith you are today? So I don't know if it's, if yeah, the first answer is the right answer. The book that came to mind is called The Go-Giver. Um, and The Go-Giver is just, a, it's a fictional story about a man who was trying to be a high performer and hooked up with this older gentleman who kind of gave him these keys and principles for for giving more than you receive. And um, and I think it was just, it, it settled me into a way to do business. I read it at a time when I was, I don't know what I was, I was selling Amway maybe. I was, you know, but I'd kind of held on to, yeah, I've done, you know, I'm a Caribbean girl. I'm going to do multiple things. But I, I, I wanted to not hustle and I really wanted to serve regardless of what I was doing. And the go-giver kind of, just settled me into the way that I am at my core, which is to give, is a great way to do business. And so, um, yes, I do want to get it right, and I do want to charge the right price, and I do want to, I do want all of those things, but I do want to just be anchored that whatever I do, I am giving more in value than I am expecting to receive, so to speak. You know, it's not transactional for me. And so in a non-transactional way, if people wanted to reach out to you because of what you are, you know, expressing and what you understand about them and, and they're at home with their, their high needs child or even any children, really, because this is, this pertains to all motherhood on any level. We can still get overwhelmed. You guys can still feel, you know, the tension, all the feels. It doesn't have to be at this extreme. How do they get a hold of you to have you hold space for them during this process? So one way is to um, accept a free download of my book. I, I, every month I give out some free copies of my book because I feel like there are these women, as you said, who are feeling crazy um, and just want to remain anchored to get anchored again. So um, I Facebook is a good place. Um, faithclark.com is a good place. My email address is faith at melodyofautism.com. And I would love to send uh, a free copy of the book. But if you get a free copy of the book and you want to talk to, I'd be very happy to kind of just listen and hold some space. And sometimes I'll kind of get a couple of people together and we do a whole virtual chit chat because many women with kids with special needs do feel isolated. And I love to kind of just pull a couple of women together and we'll just talk about what's going on and how this feels, how the journey feels. So yeah, reach out. Facebook is a good way. Email is a great way. I'd be happy we'll to put all that in the show notes too. Okay. I'm just so grateful for you for sharing this part of your story with 
the listeners with myself, give Zach a huge hug from me and say, I like it. You know, this comes from, you know, Tamara. She's sorry. He'll be like, what are you talking about? I'll be like, I didn't know. (laughs) Um, But I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope everybody has a magical day today. Everybody's home. It's a holiday here. So we're all chilling. It's awesome. Thank you. Cheers, sister. Thanks, everybody.